Welcome to the Mac PFD Sparkle podcast. This is Ruth Chen, and in the Sparkle subseries, we'll bring you shorter segments released in between our longer Spark episodes. We'll have new and exciting interviews with professionals from across the world, helping you to achieve your personal and professional goals as a healthcare educator, researcher, leader, or practitioner at any stage of your career. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this episode of the Mac PFD Sparkle Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Jonathan Sherbineau and Dr. Teresa Chan discussing the awards nomination process. Dr. Sherbineau offers some tips to promote colleagues and peers with the right award at the right time. Drs. Chan and Sherbineau reflect on their own experiences with the awards nomination process and offer some key insights on how they get the most out of their efforts in promoting peers. Hello, everyone. I am here with Dr. Jonathan Sherman. He's the Assistant Dean for the McMaster Education Research Innovation and Theory Program, MERIT, as it's known, because it's much easier to say than that big, long name. And he focuses right now in the portfolio of making sure that our Faculty of Health Sciences has a strong education research unit within it that can lead us through kind of developing and upping our game with our scholarship of teaching and learning. So Jonathan, can you say hi to everyone? Hi, Teresa, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast. And as a scientist with MERIT, I'm going to have to dock you marks for not even remembering what what MERIT stands for. (laughs) Well, it's just a mouthful to say. Once you actually type it all out, I can usually do it that way. But, you know, there's a lot of words, which is why I like to call it MERIT. And if you're not a MERIT member, but this sounds interesting to you, I'm going to go out there and put a plug in that it's a really awesome little community of practice that focuses on how people can engage in education research and taking that research and putting it into their day-to-day lives with their clinical, their classroom and basically all the other parts of their lives as well. So I do think that it's a great opportunity for you to network with other people across the health sciences faculty to be able to engage in talking about scholarship, engaging in it sometimes, and definitely being a part of a bigger community. Thanks for that. Can I double down on the plug? If you are a faculty member in FHS, this is a community for you. If you are interested in education scholarship, but you don't have to have figured it all out. You don't have to have your own lab. You don't have to even be doing scholarship at this point. But if you have curiosity or you think that your academic focus is taking you in this direction, check us out, merit.mcmaster.ca. You will find that we have so many events that our only operating mission statement is pure FOMO. We want you to cease an event or an activity or conversation or a community to connect with that really piques your interest and kind of stimulates you as an academic in the world of health professions education. So on that note, within the merit community, one of the things I've noticed is that you actually are someone who really does foster community in a bunch of different ways. But one of the ways that I wanted to bring you on the podcast to talk about was that I mean, I think we have both collaborated on enough of these that I know that you're quite good at it. But I think one of the things that I've seen really light your eyes up and get you really excited is actually putting other people out for awards. And that's something I wanted to bring you in to talk about, because I think that's a very focused act of sponsorship. And we've talked to other folks about mentorship and sponsorship more broadly, but 
sometimes those talks can be a little bit more conceptual. And they're not as nitty gritty as to like the nuts and bolts of how to actually be a sponsor. And as someone who has been a great sponsor for myself, I thought I'd have this conversation with you and get on the record and talk a little bit about how we can actually use some tactics like sponsoring people forward for awards to think about how we can actually open those doors for many people. That's kind of like a reason why I brought you in, just so you know. And I thought we could engage in it. So Jonathan, what's your take on like sponsorship just broadly, and then we can narrow in on the award stuff. So thanks, Teresa. The big reveal is is now revealed. This is an area that is important to me. And I think it's something that all senior leaders and senior faculty members need to consciously think about. And you're right. We can talk about mentoring in the abstract, which usually devolves into a tactic of come have a cup of coffee and we'll say nice things and have abstract conversations not as transformative as the work of supporting people in nominations for awards. And so here's the rationale for me. And I don't want to give away too many tactics because then all the people that I'm putting up for awards might be outcompeted by people who are a little bit more savvy. So I'll maybe speak a little bit around the edges. The assumption that our early and mid-career faculty members are being recognized and known is an assumption we should probably challenge. None of us, even though we are all ambitious, feel that it's appropriate or even acceptable for us to say, hey, I want to promote my own work. And this is a classic error just in research where we think, you know what, the work will speak for itself and the work never speaks for itself. We need to help situate it, provide context and articulate the why, even though we think the how should articulate that. And the who cares piece is often not included. So if we expanded that conversation about why our research doesn't speak for itself effectively and why we need to do knowledge translation work and to tell stories and to connect the dots for people, the same is too for the careers of early and mid-career faculty members. Even though they may be very well known within our very small professional network within a school or which is probably pretty large, but maybe within a, a division of a department or just within some network of how we connect with them their work and their contribution to the faculty might not be happening at that faculty level if their network doesn't touch through the seven degrees of separation or six degrees of separation into the more senior members of the faculty. And so a really great thing that a more senior faculty member can do is to not just do the talent spotting, but to recognize significant contribution, significant innovation, significant work of scholarship that's being conducted by an early and mid-career faculty member and go to them and say, I think you would be an excellent candidate to be recognized for that award and help navigate and sponsor that nomination moving forward. Now, what it means is not only does that faculty member get rewarded and one award begets a second award, which begets a second award, and now you've started that flywheel for academic success because it's really hard to win a national award or protected time from some research institute if you have an award section in your your academic CV that is largely blank. The second part, beyond helping to promote and develop an academic track record for faculty members, is it also helps to recognize the program or the community from which that scholar emerges and helps to bring recognition that this program, Merit, for example, or this department or this school is doing some really innovative things at a level that's being recognized nationally. And it, again, helps to induce and build a culture of excellence, of excitement, of engagement. And so there are collateral positive effects of recognizing and having uh, faculty members 
uh, nominated and win uh, regional and national level awards. And so let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of what that might look like then. And so obviously, I'm not asking you to give away all your trade secrets, but let's talk a little bit about when you are thinking about putting someone forward, what are some key things that would make for a successful nomination? So even before we got to the point of a successful nomination, I think there's some pre-work that you need to be systematic and not just opportunistic and understand these are key awards for my discipline or my field. So in health professions education, there are a number of national and international awards that have regular annual nomination processes. And so if you're just episodically, oh yeah, it's time for that, you're going to miss opportunities. So you need to be systematic. And you also need to be systematic in saying, okay, who are the people for which I can serve as a sponsor that I should be thinking, oh, this award at this point in their career can be helpful or not. And then also a sense of transparency. It can be difficult if you have a number of people within your professional network that are at similar or slightly orthogonal stages of their career. And you want to ensure that there's not a sense of, well, this person only is favoring this section of that professional network. You want some process that ensures that there is appropriate recognition for work but that it's not driven by a personal connection or by some type of favoritism. Or even more worrisomely, is is there some kind of structural or unconscious bias that doesn't recognize and adequately support representation from across that entire network? You would never want a department that's only putting forward certain phenotypes of academics for awards because of some unconscious process. So I think you need some kind of system to say transparent and systematic and then also systematic in looking at what are the opportunities. Yeah, because I was going to say the prep work that you're talking about here is really important and building a system that's robust that can actually support all that. And I think that's where you bake in some of the equity, diversity, inclusion kind of criteria. You make sure that when people think about nominations, that they actually meaningfully think across different segments to think about different kind of paradigms to make sure that they're actually not only, for instance, if you're a researcher and you're nominating people for research awards, are you only nominating positivist, quantitative scientists, or are there great qualitative researchers within a group, for instance, that might be an amazing recipient for a national award, for instance? It might be at the level of a division or a program director or any kind of academic leader thinking about looking and auditing who they've nominated in the past for you know, chief resident of the year or a faculty member of the year awards and making sure that you do engage in some level of auditing and practice to make sure that you have all the right nominees, that you're not favoring one gender or another, one ethnic group or another. I think those are all important things to keep in mind. And then thinking about the structural components, like you said, that may have led to previous success. There are certain cultures and subcultures where certain attributes are favored. And therefore, it may be that you have to take a step back and say, are there people who are less extroverted and are not noticed as much? And how can you make sure that you begin to notice them? And how do you add in some systematic way, maybe a CV audit or some kind of uh, mechanism? to be able to overcome some of those biases. I think the structural bias and the unconscious bias really needs to be attended to in this current age because it's unconscious and it's structural. And so us just saying, we're going to just do better is not a, is not a solution without developing a process that's systematic and that's balanced and equitable in its design. I would say that it doesn't need to be as intimidating as some of those words can suggest. 
and we don't have some automated digital CV app that's going through and doing a scanning practice and, and calculating scores and, and putting together in an automated fashion, nominees are going to become a crow country. Someday it Yeah. Well, it, probably not someday, probably in the very near future, but it does require a scanning practice. So you need to know what's there. It needs some kind of distribution so that people who say this award aligns with what I'm doing, because the person who has the best sense of how successful their application as a nominee will be is generally a scholar, but not in every case, but they're closest to their own work and through their own CV and their own representative contribution to understand how close they are. But then it requires a committee to say, okay, understanding who we represent and who we are sponsoring within our professional network, who are the, who's the individual who has enough of an imposter syndrome that they could never see themselves in this, that from the more detached academic perspective, we realize that person really does meet the criteria. And so you need a bit of a balance of people saying, you know what, this could really work for me, but you also need a committee of people that are being systematic and doing a scanning practice to say, okay, this is, is something that's appropriate. And then you want to never internally compete with yourself. So you want to find who's the best nominee at this time, rather than saying, we're going to put a whole bunch of nominees from our internal pool forward, because that's just inefficient in terms of resources. Putting together a successful nomination package does require time. And the more you dilute those resources by putting multiple nominees forward for the same award that come from your internal pool, the less rigorous and the less quality will be demonstrated in those application packages. You might be spreading yourself too thin if you're trying to nominate more than one. You need to be tactical in saying, who is the best individual for this award at this time? There are schools of thought that say you just keep putting the person forward until they're successful within the window with, for which they're eligible. I don't buy into that. I buy into you should put the nominee forward when they have achieved their maximal strength as a candidate, but not at the very last moment. Give them a chance for a second nomination in the subsequent year. Similar to grants, right? Like the idea would be like you have an early career award or a grant that's coming up. The idea would be like, don't submit in the very last year you're eligible. If you're a junior faculty member, you want to back it up maybe one or two years. So you have a dry run year and then you can be more successful and maybe get some feedback from more people. But I do think in committees where the selection pool is smaller, having people being submitted three, four, five, six years in a row with, with incremental changes, I think there's a group psychology that says, okay, we've seen this package before, it's incrementally better, but the contrast effect from the previous year's submission, when this is the fourth time submitting, I think it doesn't take into account some of the group psychology that can happen. So I think you want to put together your your best version at the best moment in that window when the candidate's applicable. I think you want to put together packages that really are powerful narratives. And so the the thing I see as a selection committee member oftentimes is a very generic covering letter from the nominator that comes with a very thick CV. And when you start reading between the lines, you see an excellent candidate, but that powerful narrative has been lost. And so the nominator letter needs to take the specific details that can be found in the CV and provide a story as to, here's why this is important. Let me paint the context. Here's the influence. The so what is this? And paint a story because, you know, as humans, we find greater attachment and easier recall of a story than we do with some of the hard data. And so when it comes to that decision-making process, nominations with strong stories 
that are supported by data are really powerful and have significant sway, I think. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I've sat on enough of these as a recipient on the committees of the award selection committees that I've seen some not very good letters of recommendation. So what are some pitfalls that, I mean, other than not having a story, are there any other pitfalls that people sometimes use when they're drafting these packages? Two come immediately to mind. One is the package doesn't follow the sequence and doesn't clearly signpost the criteria of the award. So don't just write a generic letter that said, this person's amazing and here's a really good story. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be contacted. The criteria of the award is typically how all of these will be adjudicated. And in systematic scoring processes, they will be assigned uh, points according to each of the subsequent criteria. So if you haven't walked through the criteria and signposted, here's where we address criteria A, here's where we address criteria B, then you make the work of the committee trying to decipher your, your package really unhelpful. I literally was doing that the other night. I was going through a rubric that we just drafted that had all the criteria mapped to it, you know, behavioral anchors, and I had to go hunting. And it was very frustrating, right? And you can imagine, even if it's just that frustration, and everything's in there, that might lower your nominee's chances just because I have to work harder to do it. And I'm now a little grumpier. And then your biases might be at play as a raider to be like, mm, that one wasn't as good as this other one, where it was like signposted with like bolded font underlined, be like criteria one, this is how this person met it, right? And I think that making things easy for the end user, just like we do with our scientific writing or when we're doing our teaching, bearing that in mind is important. All right, second one. This is equally egregious to not answering the nomination criteria, which is unconscious bias and discrimination. And so I'm not sure if you've talked about this on your podcast before, Teresa. I know you know this literature, but there is really clear literature about how nominations from underrepresented groups in health professions education can be discriminated against unintentionally by the nominator. And it's using colloquial language. It's talking about attributes that are unrelated to the rigor and academic merit of a candidate. And when you put nomination packages side by side, imagine a male versus a female application. It is quite shocking and disturbing how the unconscious use of language has led to a much more robust and objective representation of the quality of the work of the candidate who is male versus some of the unconscious, I imagine it's unconscious, but maybe conscious as well, discrimination that are used in the language, the description and the structuring of applications for women and for other underrepresented groups and communities within health professions education. It's a structural thing and an implicit thing at times, but having, I find actually a list of adverbs that are gender neutral that you could use in both or all groups, regardless of gender, would be really important. And so instead of favoring words like lovely for women, for instance, it might be amazing or superb. There are different superlatives that we use for different people that come more naturally because of the gendered nature of some of these terms. But lovely doesn't explain someone's dedication or excellence in an area. So if you mean excellent, you should probably try to say it. We do that in letters of reference, but award nominations are probably somewhere where we can use the same kind of like trigger words to help us like a, a word list. I think K through 12 teachers do it for report cards. <laughs> we can do it for this too, you know. There's certainly trigger words, which are part of it. I think there's also issues of criterion. You can certainly see a contrast in the types of criterion being used for male versus female candidates. And then you can also see the inclusion of detail 
that is wholly unrelated to the objectives of the award that speak unconsciously to why this person might not be taken as seriously as a nominee when compared. And so it's words, it's also the comparator or the criterion, and it's also the inclusion of information wholly unrelated to the design of the award. And so it really requires, I think, nominee committees to have a systematic and intentional look at how they're structuring their letters to ensure that there's consistency in the, the way they are generated and then proofed before submission are done in a thoughtful way to this unconscious bias. Yeah, and I think the last thing that I was going to say is that if you think that you might be a good candidate for an award and maybe you don't know if people know what you've been up to, sometimes you have to be your own advocate, right? And so this is something that especially women and underrepresented groups sometimes you have that imposter syndrome, so you might not think about it, but I think it's okay to run it by one of your colleagues, one of your close confidants to say, hey, I think I meet the criteria for this. What do you think? And having that discussion and seeing if they'd be willing to help with that nomination. I think that's something that I have actually want to normalize because I think it's something that people don't do enough of and that there are places where people actually do that regularly. So I wanted to put that out there as well. I think if you're an early career educator, it's hard for you to put your hand up and say, can I be recognized here? It's just, un, it's not part of our culture. And so the trick is to have your mentor ask the nominee committee to consider you. And so you do it through an intermediary to be the successful individual to put your name forward or to have that conversation about, is this the right time for me to pursue that and to be strategic in that way? All right. Okay. Well, that's a really good pro tip. And thank you so much for your time. I mean, all of this stuff is it's, it's an art more than a science. So I do think that yeah. reach out, email us. Maybe we can bring back Jonathan another time. Maybe he'll do a workshop with us if I can convince him. So write us some fun fan mail and we'll try to get on it. Let us know what you think of this uh, content. Give us your best practices if you have them and we can share it on the podcast. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.